those uh, eight minutes and 46 seconds that took George Floyd's life opened the eyes of millions of Americans and millions of people around all over the world. That's President Joe Biden in his speech before he signed his executive order on racial equity in January. It was the knee on the neck of justice, and it wouldn't be forgotten. It stirred the conscience and of tens of millions of Americans. And in my view, it marked a turning point in this country's attitude toward racial justice. I'm Brant Williams, and this is In Front of Our Eyes. I'm a reporter at NPR News. I've covered the city of Minneapolis for nearly 30 years, and I'm one of several journalists who've been reporting on the story of George Floyd and the fallout of his death. Part of that has been protest. But they're going to learn after George Floyd. No more victims that just scream, I can't breathe. Step in. Step in. Part of it has been white celebrities saying Black Lives Matter. I take responsibility for every unchecked moment. Every not-so-funny joke. Every unfair stereotype. Every blatant injustice, no matter how big or small. Every time I remained silent. Every time I explained away police brutality. And part of it has been a shift in how people talk about racism. I've seen more white people take a step back and examine what it means to have privilege and be more willing to listen to people who don't. These changes don't mean my life is that different. I'm still a black man living in Minneapolis. I still long for the day when people enter into conversations about race, privilege, and white supremacy wearing their empathy on their sleeves. In this podcast, we want to reflect on racism, what's different, and what's not. I called my cousin Amani. She's younger than I am. The first black boy she remembers being killed was Trayvon Martin. She remembers how people made excuses about it, how some people wanted it to be anything but racist. After George Floyd was killed, she noticed a lot of people, a lot of white people, marching and speaking out. I asked her if the killing of George Floyd was different. Why? I think because it was filmed. I think when it's not filmed and you don't have as much of an audience as there was for George Floyd, I think that, you know, they listen to the police officer's words or over what was obvious. And, you know, you can look the other way or you can misconstrue facts because you don't have video evidence. Like, there was no way to get around what happened. It was blatant. Everyone saw it. And I think that people just really took it to a whole nother level with, um, you know, spray painting Black Lives Matter and protesting and having pictures of George Floyd and his family and, you know, that he had kids. And it was just really a story that a lot of people could relate to. Tell me about personally, were there white people in your life that either friends or acquaintances who maybe you couldn't talk to about this? if they maybe they didn't quite understand 
the importance of this. Um, I'm, I'm curious about your personal relationships and, and how it was Im- impacted by all this. Yeah, so I had a teacher in um, high school, my junior and senior year, and we had gotten really close. And I remember after George Floyd's death, um, I had got there in the morning and I usually would meet her in the parking lot. And she was like, oh my God, are you okay? And she said it like I had just gotten in a car accident or something. And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. You know, like, what are you talking about? And she was like, George Floyd? And I think she was feeling like this is kind of a black person's issue. And so, you know, she was like, you know, how are you and your family handling this? And I'm like, it should be the same way you and your family are handling it. You know, just because you're white and I'm black. I mean, you know, I was saying I didn't know George Floyd personally. Like, it's not like I would have a personal reaction. We all should have the same reaction to it, you know, despite your race. Right, right. That it's horrible and it needs to change. But as you said, it's it's something that, and I think um, in in interviews and talks that I've had with other people after George Floyd was killed, that the impact—I mean, it's like a, it's accumulation of trauma—seems to have piled up and gotten to a point where some people were really having a hard time, just even having those conversations with people that didn't understand and just had to tell them, "Now's not the time. We can't talk about this." Let me let me process this, and and I just wonder if, um, in in talking to other friends of yours, maybe other friends, other black friends, about if they've had that similar feeling of this accumulating trauma and just reaching a point where it's like, you know what, now I'm just not in a, I don't feel like now's a good time for me to try to educate you on how I feel. Yes, I've definitely felt that with people that I've tried to explain you know, how police brutality is murder and we need to stop calling it police brutality and call it what it is and just try to explain to them what racism is in general and how it can be subtle. I think a lot of times young white people think who are, you know, who are uneducated about this kind of thing. I think a lot of times they are waiting for it to be blatant, you know, for someone to just call you the N-word. You know, it's not like that really anymore that still happens but it's more subtle nowadays because people understand that it's not you know a society as a whole doesn't accept it anymore so i feel like i've struggled with those people in my life i have definitely lost friends over the whole thing since trump um was elected in 2016 and him running again and george floyd and all of it just a culmination of it i've definitely lost friends through that process of dealing with all of that. But as far as having friends and trying to explain to them, I didn't feel like I needed time to process George Floyd because I really saw them trying to understand where I was. And so I really felt like, you know, if they don't have other black people that they feel like they can talk to about this, it's a huge thing for them to be able to trust me enough to ask me and know that I won't be offended. And so I've really taken that time to explain to um, my friends, you know, what they can do. Because I feel like a lot of white people, too, they were like, what, you know, what are we supposed to do about it? We want to help, but what is there that we can do? And, you know, I told them anything is better than nothing. I mean, educate your children about it. Let them know what's going on because they go to school and they're going to hear about it and they need to know the facts of it and, you know, know where to stand in the situation, which side is right and which side is wrong. Because in that instance there was a right and a wrong side. You know, I'm also curious about how you saw other parts, other sectors of 
America reacting just from your from where you sat there in Florida, uh, either if it was uh, how you saw celebrities responding or companies advertising with slogans saying Black Lives Matter, uh, athletes speaking up who maybe didn't speak up before. Eight minutes and 46 seconds is enough time to lift a knee. To do what is right. To say something. To acknowledge the pain of the black community. You have cheered for us, but we need you to cheer with us now. When we need you most. Black Black Lives Matter. Matter. Black Black Lives Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Or maybe those athletes who've always been speaking up were maybe taken more seriously. The first thing I'd say is I wish we had listened earlier, uh, Cap, to what you were kneeling about and what you were trying to bring attention to. What were some of the other things that you saw that maybe seemed a little different from past instances of a black person being killed by police? Well, I think it really started with Colin Kaepernick when he didn't stand for the flag and he chose to kneel. And he said that he won't stand for a country who's oppressing and, you know, murdering people of color. And I think that everyone at the time attacked him. And, you know, they were like, that's unpatriotic. And Trump at the time, who was the president, um, you know, called him an SOB and said that he should be fired. And black people were at the time were trying to say no that he's standing up for what he believes in. This is his First Amendment right. He's not infringing upon anyone else's right. He's doing what he thinks will get the message across. And then seeing this and people having to protest the way they had to protest, I think that really is part of what made all of the country and other countries stand up with us because they were saying, like, they've seen how many times we've tried to protest this. And nothing is done. And so then you have something like this and you realize that this is going to keep happening and it takes a larger number of people. You're going to need white people, especially, to join in and understand the seriousness of it and hold their people accountable. After George Floyd was killed, Amani's mother, my cousin Terry, showed me one of Amani's poems. I wrote it in 2018, 2017-2018. And um, it's really just about young Black boys and how it's so hard to explain to them at such a young age that they can be racially profiled and that... It's going to be hard. It's not easy growing up as a black man in America. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. Hopefully it will. Um, But that is just a fact of their existence. And so I just wrote a poem about that. And it ended up tying into everything with George Floyd. And I ended up posting it around that time. It's called Raising Kings. My brown-eyed boy with hot chocolate skin soft and smooth like silk, looked at me and threw me as I laid with him. His purity outweighs the hatefulness of this world. His cheerful disposition precedes him. I held him as I ran my fingers through his chestnut curls, and I told him, grown-ups don't always make it easy for brown-eyed boys with hot chocolate skin. But what's important is within. 
I want you to change the world with your chestnut curls and remain my pure boy when the world tries to pull you in. Thanks for doing that. Thank you. The first criminal trial over the killing of George Floyd has begun with jury selection. Being a black man in America, uh, I experience races on a day-to-day basis. Okay. Um, how does that? How do you feel that that would affect your uh, ability to be a juror in this case? Uh, not at all. We'll talk about that next time. I'm Brant Williams. In Front of Our Eyes is hosted by me, John Collins, Raham Fashir, and Nina Moini. Our producers are Tiffany Hansen, Whitney Jones, and Ryan Lohr. Digital producers, Michael Olson and Nancy Yang. Technical director, Johnny Vince Evans. Our editor is Phyllis Fletcher. We'll give you updates every week on the trial of Derek Chauvin from American Public Media and NPR News.